Welcome to Cows on the Planet podcast number 16. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge, which has a resident population of rattlesnakes as part of its native prairie ecosystem. My co-host today is Dr. Tim McAllister, a principal scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Our topic today is should we be rewilding instead of using land for cattle. Doing more Googling, cattle seem to be using a lot of land and others have suggested that livestock, including cattle, should be removed and native species reintroduced in a process called rewilding. I know you've probably got some opinions on land use by cattle, Tim, but is there anything in particular that you are looking forward to in our discussion today? Yeah, Kim, I'm looking forward to having a discussion with Ed. You know, is that land, is it purpose for cattle or should we be using it for something else? And one of the key things I know that really came out in the Paris Accord, it wasn't mentioned quite as much in the recent COP26 in Glasgow, though, is that those grassland ecosystems I know are the poster child for carbon sequestration and dealing with greenhouse gas emissions and reductions in agriculture. I know Ed's done quite a bit of work in that area, and I'm looking forward to what he has to say about how cows can be used to promote carbon in grassland ecosystems. So to untangle land use issues by cattle, we have as our guest, Dr. Edward Bork, Mathis Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management at the University of Alberta. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Well, we're really happy to have you here, even though we tried to get you to come like an hour later than you thought you were going to. So sorry for the scheduling problems. So Ed, can you describe the long and winding, or maybe it was a short and direct path that led you to become the Mathis Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management at the University of Alberta? How did you get here from there? Sure. Well, the University of Alberta has always had a research station that many folks may be aware of called the Kinsella Research Station, which is up in the Aspen Parkland area. And it's been a focal area for beef research, but also rangeland research for going on about 40 years. The one thing about that facility is that it's an environment that's pretty productive because it has a high moisture base. But around 2009, I was approached by Edwin and Ruth Mathias about a potential donation of land to the University of Alberta for a tract of land that they owned in the Brooks area. And one of the things that was very attractive about it is that particular ranch that they were operating was in the dry mixed grass prairie, which is a very different environment than the Kinsella Research Station. And if you think about the the challenges to grazing, the fundamental constraints to grazing, and the issues that ranchers are facing in the mixed grass prairie, it's very different than the parkland. So it was very attractive to the U of A for that reason. That discussion eventually culminated in the donation of the Matheus property to the University of Alberta in 2011. And at that time, to honor the donation made by the Matheus family, U of A created the Rangeland Research Institute to basically foster research, teaching, and technology transfer in sustaining rangelands, both environmentally and economically. And at the same time, they created the Matheus Chair, which I was fortunate enough to fill. 
So Ed, we hear that livestock are often allocated with using a lot of agricultural land, you know, as much as 80% on the planet, we've heard figures quote it. And they often use this as a justification as to why we need to move away from eating so much meat and eating more plant-based foods. Uh, So speaking in Canada, what percentage of the land is used for grazing and would that land actually be suitable for growing crops? So I'm going to answer that, Tim, in a, in a bit of a roundabout way. So I'm going to first define what rangelands really are, because even though we can find rangelands historically on any type of land in Western Canada, and by, and by that I mean class one, two, three, four, all the way down to six, seven soils, where one, two, three soils are higher quality soils that are typically very productive and more likely to be cultivated for cropping. By default, many of the rangelands that we have today, so the areas that remain non-cultivated, are usually in the lower quality soil classes. So three at best and usually four or five or six or, or lower. And the reason for that is because those lands are usually too cold, too stony, too hilly. There's something wrong with them that fundamentally constrains the ability of society to plow them under and grow crops on it. So By a bit of a default, rangelands happen to fall in areas that suffer from these limitations. Now, that's not to say that class one and two soils can't be comprised of perennial forage lands and support beef grazing. It just means that as a society, we've kind of made the decision to convert those areas into cropland. So the question that you're really getting at is how much further expansion potential is there for example, in the beef industry. And I would argue because most of the class one, two, and even three soils have already been converted, there probably isn't a lot of additional conversion that could happen. However, having said that, and having traveled around Western Canada a lot, it is still going on, but it's slowed down to a trickle. And it's usually happening in some of that fringe area of the mixed grass prairie where producers are thinking because of high crop prices they can convert some of that over uh, the the native grassland into forage land and maybe get some short-term economic benefit from cropping and we see the same push going on in the foothills and the transition into the boreal forest where we get boreal forest clearing and if those areas aren't put down to perennial forage they're putting it down into crops so there's a little bit of loss still going on but by and large We've probably peaked out, and I would say that the potential for further conversion is probably at the best five or ten percent. We've pretty much maxed out otherwise. I wonder, Ed, about you know, I see a lot of acreages going in in the eastern slopes of the Rockies, and you know, we continue to see the expansion in Calgary as well with the urbanization there. And looks like there's quite a bit of good grassland around Calgary as well. Are are those kind of activities, you know, going to be more responsible for taking up some of that rangeland in the future as opposed to cultivation? Or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, those are very, very, very real threats to not only the existence, but also the, the conservation of those, those grasslands and the plethora of environmental goods and services that they provide, which includes forage production and livestock production, namely beef for the most part. And, and as you pointed out, and that's happening certainly around the major urban centers, yeah, around Calgary, around Bragg Creek, Okotoks, but it's also happening along the Western front, you know, in the Pincher Creek area, for example. And it's a fairly contentious issue. 
because some folks may be interested in in selling out and going through this uh, urbanization or the development of what I like to call ranchettes, which are small 20-acre, 40-acre, 80-acre parcels. But what it really does is it effectively fragments the landscape and it introduces roads and power lines and barking dogs, which displace wildlife. And of course, you no longer have the large intact grazing by either wildlife or livestock on those areas. And so some of those landowners often are going to bring in a few horses or maybe a few cattle of their own. They usually don't have a lot of training in how to graze properly. And so you get a lot of overuse and a lot of degradation. So those are very real threats and they're just happening because because we have an increasing population and a more affluent population and everyone wants their their piece of heaven, really. So, Ed, something that um, I read on the internet, like I, I'm due too much Googling on the internet probably, and I have seen it put that cattle production or using land for livestock, grazing land for livestock, is leading to malnutrition by preventing crop pro- crop production. So I've seen that written. Do you believe that that is even possible? Is is grazing causing people to be malnourished? Or we should be using this land instead for crop production? Because that seems to be the thinking that you, that you see on some sites. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. It's a, it's a very complex question. And I think the answer to that is really, it depends on where the feed is coming from. So if we're talking about cow-calf pairs, for example, or stalker cattle, that are grazing on pasture, as I pointed out, that's on marginal land, those lower class soils that are fundamentally not suitable for conversion to annual crop production. The answer is no, uh, because cattle grazing in those areas is compatible with not only maintaining the grassland that's there, but also the plethora of other environmental goods and services that they've been providing for thousands of years. And so in the process, they do not detract I would argue, from human food production. As I said, the opposite is really true, that because many of these lands have very significant limitations for cultivation and crop production, they're really better off being left alone. And the reality is they've evolved with large mammal herbivory. Um, There were, you know, 30 to 60 million bison roaming across the plains of North America. Tens of millions of elk and deer and antelope were joining them. So, All of those grasslands are really well-evolved to cope with herbivory. And therefore, it's not a matter of whether they should be grazed. It's more a matter of how they can best be grazed to, to, to conserve them. It just so happens that we don't have large herds of bison anymore because we've fragmented the landscape. That's the reality of post European settlement. And so by displacing the bison, we've just happened to introduce another herbivore, Bostaurus, which is, you know, our commercial beef cattle as the dominant grazer within these systems today. And so what they're effectively doing is they're converting these coarse sources of fibrous forage into a usable protein that benefits society. Now, having said that, I guess the, the one caveat that I would have to this is that if we're talking about finishing cattle in feedlots, for example, using annual crops that are produced, you know, within within areas that have been converted from grassland into cropland, the answer may be more complex here, because at that point in time, you then have to ask yourself, could we be taking those same grains 
and feeding them directly to the human population. And in that case, there may be an argument to be made for that. But I would argue at that point that it's really a matter of what the consumer demand is in terms of the final product that they want. So if a consumer wants a grass-finished animal, then I believe to go back to your core question, if you buy a grass-finished heifer or steer, then you are not going to be reducing food stock really for the human population elsewhere. But if you're buying a grain-finished feedlot animal that's been in there for eight or 10 months, one could argue that, yes, there may be direct competition for an alternative human uh, source of food, protein. So anyways, that's, I guess, the, my perspective on that. One could also argue as well that if you look at the global food supply chain, that a lot of the food stock that's actually produced out there goes to waste anyways. So, and I think that argument maybe comes into play anyways, that again, it's consumers making those choices. And I think consumers have a very big voice in determining where their beef comes from and how it's produced and the environmental footprint that it has, including the trickle-down effect on human food supply globally. And we actually had another podcast on feed grain and things like that and how most of it is not suitable for human use anyway, like it's the, the crappy stuff that people won't eat. But that's another podcast. of. The, but you're tying very nicely into Tim's next question. Yeah, well, I think if they were going to experience malnutrition, we know for sure that if they tried consuming what's out on those grasslands directly, that would constitute malnutrition for sure because mm. people just can't derive the value from it that cattle can uh, through grazing. So, Ed, you mentioned about grazing, and we know we need to practice good grazing management on those rangelands. So what constitutes good grazing management? Great question. And the reality is that the, the principles of good grazing management have actually changed over time. They've evolved in essence. Early on, when the discipline of range management and the, the early discipline of range science started, most of the discussion was about controlling how many animals, where they graze, when they graze. So essentially regulating the spatial and temporal distribution of forage removal across the landscape. And ultimately, those three factors come together to form something that we call stocking rates, which is the aggregate forage demand or the aggregate amount of biomass that's removed by animals. And so if we can regulate stocking rates and therefore in the process, the spatial and temporal distribution of forage removal, that really overwhelmingly will help regulate the sustainability and, and manage for the long-term conservation of these plant communities. So what we do know is that, for example, excess stocking rates clearly lead to a reduction in the vigor of forage plants. It slows regrowth. It leads to increased bare soil, increased risk of erosion, and therefore desertification. And so this is a phenomena that occurs in many areas of the world that society is trying to combat. However, there's another way of looking at grazing impacts. And this is more of a contemporary perspective, which looks at the concept of range health. And range health steps back and looks at key ecosystem processes that are taking place within these plant communities, within these grasslands. All of these functions really revolve around the ability of a healthy plant community to really capitalize on light capture, water uptake, nutrient uptake, and taking those fundamental resources and converting it into biomass. 
So, and the functions really reflect three different components. One is energy capture and flow through the ecosystem. Second one is, are we keeping the nutrients on site and making sure that they're cycling through the soil, through the microbes and back up through the plants and animals and back and forth? And what we don't wanna see there are nutrients leaking or disappearing off the landscape due to erosion or, or other undesirable losses. The third one is water, especially in water limited environments. We really wanna make sure that we capture as much water get it into the soil, make sure it's held by the soil, and then made available for uptake by roots where it can contribute to plant growth. And so there's lots of ways that these functional processes come together. And here's a couple of examples. So if you think about a plant community that has higher diversity, so more plant species and more vertical layers. So if you think about, you know, tall shrubs, low shrubs, tall dicots or broadleaf plants and then lower ones and even tall grasses and short grasses, the more layers you have, the more likely the plant community is to intercept and capture all of the incoming light and therefore convert that light into photosynthate and therefore plant biomass. We can think of the same phenomena in terms of water capture, for example. We often talk about litter and retaining as much litter on the surface of the soil as possible. The reason we want to do that is because litter insulates the soil, keeps the soil cool. When it does rain, it holds the water in place so it can infiltrate. And then by keeping the soil cool, it minimizes evaporation. And so from a functional perspective, that litter layer is really ensuring that as much of that water that falls is being made available for plant growth. So all of those things kind of come together. And if you have a plant community that has optimal energy flow, um, nutrient retention, and water capture, then in essence, the plant community is going to be more productive. It's going to capture more carbon through photosynthesis. It's going to produce more forage. And it's going to be able to fulfill all those other environmental services that we want, like biodiversity, carbon capture, greenhouse gas uptake, and so on. So Ed, if bad grazing practices can lead to a loss of carbon from that system, how would that, that compare to, you know, if we were to run a cultivator over that system in terms of the amount of carbon that would be lost? So if you run a cultivator over the system... The first thing that you're obviously going to be doing is you're going to be eliminating the diversity from the plant community. So we're going from a complex polyculture with many dozens or even a hundred plus species, depending on where we are in the province. And you're simplifying the community to one or two plants, or even if you're putting in some kind of mixture, it may be three or four plants. And so what we do know is higher plant diversity is more conducive to, let's say, increasing energy capture, uh, energy flow, because a greater diversity of plants means you have more types of leaves, more layers of leaves, and more leaf area in aggregate to capture the light that's coming in. And the same thing is happening below ground. By having more plants below ground that are of different species, you've got a different variety of root systems, fibrous rooted systems, deep tap rooted systems, creeping rooted systems and so on. And so they're going to be more effective at colonizing the rhizosphere and taking up the nutrients and water that are available and building soil carbon and, and organic matter, for example. The other thing that's going to happen as soon as you run a cultivator over the prairie, 
you are altering the soil enormously. You're breaking up the aggregates within the soil. You are warming up the soil. You're adding oxygen now because the, the soil now has a different aggregate property. And so by warming the soil, adding oxygen, you're going to encourage microbes to start to respire and break down that carbon. And so what we do know is globally, if you look at the studies that have looked at the effect of land use conversion, for example, native grassland into cropland, we will lose at least 30% and more than likely 50 or 55% of our carbon over a period of 10 to 20 years. So that represents a very significant contributor to greenhouse gases, namely CO2. Let's say, Ed, that the people that are saying that cattle are using too much land, we say, okay, yeah, we're using too much land. So we take the cattle off of the land, and then after the cattle are permanently removed, what happens to these ecosystems? Do the wildlife just move in? Like, does wildlife use increase, or does grazing of cattle actually help with biodiversity of the landscape? I mean, this is a really interesting notion that's been promoted by a, a number of groups in the past. And you've seen slogans in the past to, to remove livestock grazing, for example, from public land in, in the U.S. You might recall slogans like cattle free by 93, cattle no more by 94. All of these things have been out there. And the argument was used that, well, because beef cattle didn't evolve with these grasslands that we should really remove them and then go back to this rewilding effort. What we know today, as I kind of hinted at earlier, is that the culprit is not really whether grazing should occur. We know that these grasslands evolve with grazing, so they're, they're perfectly compatible with having grazing take place. It's really a matter of how that grazing should take place. So it has to take place at the right time, at the right place, at the right stocking rate in order to maintain grass vigor, grass production, plant regrowth, plant community health, soil health, and so on. So then you get to this fundamental question about, well, what happens if we simply replace cattle with bison? I, you know, I would argue that that's a decision that consumers will fundamentally make. Because in the end, if you're talking about taking a tract of grassland and producing some kind of protein on it for human consumption, the type of protein will really be determined by consumer choice. And consumers will decide whether they want to eat bison or whether they want to eat elk or whether they want to eat uh, beef cattle or, or sheep for that matter or, or mutton or something else. So all of these things come into play. Another piece that you asked really is what happens if we remove grazing altogether? So let's say we have no bison grazing, we have no cattle grazing. This is an interesting question because in some cases there's been this push on let's just idle land. And there are conservation groups, for example, that have purchased land and then just idled it, not have any grazing on it. And we also know that that actually results in quite undesirable ecological changes. For example, if you have no grazing, you get a small group of very highly competitive plants that tend to dominate these grasslands. And so what that leads to is a decline in species diversity because those plants outcompete all of the other species. And when plant diversity declines, so does the abundance of a lot of other populations, including, for example, songbirds. There's some songbirds that actually require areas of grazed grassland that's either moderately or even heavily grazed. And if you remove all the grazing, 
those songbirds no longer have the habitat that they need. So in essence, we want this mix of habitats. Second, if you remove grazing altogether for an extended period of time, especially in high rainfall environments, you're going to build up large amounts of residual litter. So that's the dead material that accumulates on the surface of the soil. And large amounts of litter at really high levels, such as what we have in the tall grass prairie or maybe in the foothills of Alberta, that can actually delay warming of the soil in spring. It can delay spring green up. It can impede nitrogen mineralization and so on. And in essence, you can get it to the point where you get something called stagnation, which is a slowdown in growth, simply because you're starting to impede the nutrient cycle excessively. And there's all kinds of other trickle-down effects that can occur. So, for example, herbivores are known to be an important mechanism of woody plant control. So if you have no herbivory, and if you have the simultaneous suppression of fire, you're going to have woody plants that take over landscapes. And we're seeing that in some areas in Alberta. You're seeing it in areas of higher rainfall, such as the eastern plains of the U.S. and southern Manitoba, where you get overrun by woody species. So there are very compelling reasons to maintain herbivory on the landscape, whether it's controlling the amount of residual litter, woody plant control, and certainly maintaining biodiversity and all the other components that come with it. So, Ed, we've heard that the grasslands, the North American grasslands, are amongst the most threatened ecosystems on the planet. I, I've heard you know people say that the percentage conversion of North American grasslands is even greater than the destruction that we've seen in the Amazon rainforest, although we are continuously hearing about the destruction and damage that's going on in the Amazon rainforest. We don't seem to hear near as much about the land use change that's gone on, on, on the grasslands, on the prairies. But, you know, let's say suddenly that becomes really recognized and we make the decision, okay, we want to convert those lands back to their native prairie state. Is it possible to do that from cultivated fields, go back to the natural prairie after, after we've used it for cropping? Yes, it's possible, but it's unlikely. And so the reason I say that is because, yes, there are studies that suggest you can take an area that's been cultivated and you can either let it undergo natural succession, what we call this natural recovery, but that may take four or five decades, for example, and it's a very slow process and it goes through a lot of different weedy phases to get back to recovery. In the context of Alberta specifically, the only place that I've actually seen this at work is in the dry mixed grass prairie. So land, for example, that's been idled within the special areas has successfully undergone this type of natural revegetation. Having said that, you have to have a seed rain of native species that can actually enter into those areas. So you have to have some kind of native grassland surrounding it where the seed rain can come in. The reason why I think it can be successful in the mixed grass prairie is because it's a fairly dry environment where the overall weed pressure is not so high that the sheer abundance of weeds are going to limit the establishment of these native species, which tends to be very, very slow. And if you have high levels of competition, they just don't compete well. The flip side to that is if you look in the Aspen Parkland and if you look in the foothills of Alberta, for example, where 
the same effort is underway. For example, on well site reclamation, oil well site reclamation, where they pull out a well site and then they try to reestablish some of these native grassland, it's much more problematic. It's much harder to do in part because it's a wet environment and there's a very high abundance of weedy species, including within the weed seed bank. So noxious weeds, nuisance weeds, and just ruderal species that are highly opportunistic. And as soon as you idle it, there's an enormous flush of these weedy species. And even if you seed the native plants in there, they have a competitive disadvantage because they're much slower to germinate, they're much slower to emerge, and they have reduced survival. So in the end, many of those efforts have come back as outright failures. And this is one of the reasons that if you have native grassland and you're in the parkland or the foothills, you're better off conserving it and avoiding disturbance to begin with. Because if you disturb it and think that you can actually simply replace it via seeding, it's going to be easier to say that than to actually do that, in part because of the competition, as I said, from the weeds, but also because the seed is not available, the seed is expensive. And so the overall likelihood of trying to achieve that in these higher moisture, more productive grasslands is very unlikely, unfortunately. Well, thank you, Ed. My little plan of, of not using herbicides on our front lawn to turning it back into a prairie, I guess, is it's destined for failure, but um, that's okay. <laughs> Just make sure you don't water it. <laughs> well, we don't do that much either. <laughs> our neighbors love us. So, Tim, we've heard about land use by grazing cattle, the difficulty in reestablishing native plants in cultivated fields, and how good grazing management can increase carbon sequestration. So what are your takeaway points from what Ed had to say? Well, I think Ed made a, a lot of really great points, Kim. He, he emphasized how grazing is, is part of that natural grassland system and, and it's evolved over millennia. And so to remove grazers from that environment is going to have negative consequences. He emphasized how plant diversity is really important in those environments in terms of capturing the energy through photosynthesis and, and the production of the carbon, both in the upper storage and, and areas of the leaves of the plant, but as well down in the root system. Systems. And then also how those systems are really important in terms of water quality and capturing water as part of the hydrological cycle and the nutrients as well. And I, I think he also, you know, pointed out that it's really that plant livestock system that uh, optimizes those cycles within that environment and, and encourages those nutrients to move through, not to sequester in high concentrations so they can contribute to the productivity of, of that ecosystem. Thank you for listening. If you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts, please visit our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram at Cows on the Planet or Twitter at Planet underscore Cows. Our next podcast will be Cattle Production in Ghana, Challenges and Opportunities with Dr. Ada Wessa. And we've got reason to believe that the challenges in Ghana are quite different than what we face here in Canada. Dr. West is an Associate Professor of Ruminant Nutrition at the University for Development Studies in Tamale, Ghana. We had some technical problems with our first African guest, but uh, we are hope we're ready to roll with the next podcast. So we need to thank our production team, 
Carter Potts is our audio engineer and theme music developer and keeps the wheels running on the bus. Allison McNaughton and Ubi Abascaria are working on getting listeners for the podcast. Go team! Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We are just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing. Thank you.